It seems like at every turn, there's an advertisement, there's a story, there's something that suggests that we live in uncertain times. What's interesting to me about that is the future is inherently uncertain. It always was, is, and will be uncertain. And so all of these messages of uncertainty are telling me that the crowd feels inherently vulnerable in some way. And so that feeling of uncertainty is leading to lots of highly impulsive, highly emotional behavior. It's also leading us to be followers. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Peter, welcome back to our show and thank you so much for joining Gemini today for what I'm sure will be a super interesting and important conversation as part of our Global Macro Series. How are you doing? Where do we find you today? I'm doing well. I'm outside of Philadelphia today. Sounds good. And Jim, I know you're on the road today, but I think uh, technology should work hopefully in our favor despite all of that. Now, since we last spoke in June of last year, the world seemed to have become even more uncertain. But luckily for all of us, you have just written a new book called The Confidence Map, Charting a Path from Chaos to Clarity, which is a super relevant topic for our audience as we, as investors, we love charts and we all need confidence to be successful. Since we discussed your background in our last episode, which is episode 19 of our Global Macro Series, we're going to jump right into the heart of your work and help our community to become better at dealing with uncertainty and essentially become more resilient in how they live their lives. But perhaps I could ask you to start out with maybe defining what confidence mean to you. Sure. So confidence is one of those words like pornography that we know it when we see it, but people really struggle to explain it. And I've spent a long time trying to figure out what it really is. And I think particularly today, people mistake it for what I call confidence theater, which is the the appearance of being confident. And we see a lot of that today in celebrities, both in business and in culture. But to me, confidence is the feeling we have when we have both certainty and control in our lives. And those themselves are feelings, but we need both of those in order to feel a level of predictability to what's ahead, and a sense that in that future that we imagine, we have the skills, the resources, the tools, the preparation that we need to be successful. And so confidence arises when both of those come together. And 
when they do, they change all sorts of things in our lives from how we think to what we want to what we do. Yeah, no, absolutely. And maybe I should say to our audience that um, our conversation today will kind of be in two halves. Uh, the first part, which I'll probably be talking most of the time in terms of asking questions, is more about kind of the human side of confidence. And then we'll pivot into sort of how that relates maybe to uh, the financial world and markets. And, and Jim will have a lot of things to to say about that. Now, because I've sort of followed your your, your work and listened to different conversations you've had, you talk about vulnerability as being kind of the opposite of confidence. And I'm sure, <laughs> I'm guessing here, but I'm sure you may be familiar with Brené Brown's work on vulnerability. And I was thinking as I was preparing for this conversation that, uh, you know, I couldn't help thinking that it takes a lot of confidence actually to be vulnerable. But I also know that when you talk about it, you talk about the feeling of vulnerability, perhaps. So, so can you sort of clarify these things a little bit, um, perhaps? So when I think about vulnerability, I don't think about it as being voluntary. I think about it as something that is causing us to feel that what's ahead is uncertain and we feel powerless as a result. So when I talk to executives and they talk about these programs where they experience vulnerability, I think, no, you really haven't because that, that was a choice of yours to participate. You know, that, that's a very different experience than if we've been mugged or if we've suddenly fallen, you know, down a ski slope. And, and to me, there's a, there's a real difference between having an element of control in that experience versus the real sense of powerlessness. And I think what what defines traumatic events in our lives is the combination of uncertainty and powerlessness. Yeah, no, we'll, and we'll come back to that a, a little bit later. Another thing I was thinking of in, in terms of, of uh, confidence or being feeling confident is that we we often relate this term to to the future and and not the present. So I imagine when we get stressed, which we all do, that will also be about the future. And then I remember something that a, um, a gentleman called Dr. David Paul talked about when he talked about trading psychology. And he said the best way that we can lower our stress levels when we invest is to bring our minds back to the present moment. So I'm curious to know whether you agree with that and if it's just simply more difficult to feel fear and uncertainty in the present moment. Yeah, so confidence is inherently forward-looking. Uh, it's about what's coming. And so to the extent we can keep, at ex particularly at extremes in confidence, those intense feelings of what's ahead distant from us, particularly our decision-making, we're more likely to be thoughtful, far less impulsive, far less emotional. Um, and being in the present is hard because we bring a lot of baggage from the past and our anxiety or our excitement about what's coming. And so to be truly in the present is something that requires us to, to be deliberate and to practice for because it's not a natural state for us. Yeah. And we make 
maybe we will come back to this uh, a little later as well when we talk about maybe some of the techniques or some of the things we can all do to uh, to deal with um, confidence and uncertainty and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and maybe the first thing to do would be to ask you to talk a little bit about, as I mentioned, we love... We love uh, charts. We love map and uh, maps, and uh, and you've done a really good one, which is the confidence map, of course. Um, and I wonder if you can try and visualize that a little bit and, and talk to us why this is so such an, an an important concept that you've been able to to uh, yeah map out like this. Sure. So what I did was to take certainty and control, and to divide them into high and low states. And the result is a two-by-two box chart, Um, fairly simple. And if I think about each of these four boxes, there's one where I have high certainty and high control. I put that in the upper right, and I call that the comfort zone. That's where we feel relaxed. We have cognitive ease, where things feel certain. We feel as if we're in the zone. That's what athletes talk to me about a lot, that that feeling of being in the zone where it's effortless and time passes quickly, that's the comfort zone. The opposite corner, the lower left-hand corner, I call the stress center. And this is where we feel uncertain and we feel a sense of powerlessness. And this, as you said, the opposite of confidence is vulnerability. And we, we don't think of it in that way, but vulnerability is a really useful view of how we feel when confidence is low, because you can realize why we're so emotional, why we're so impulsive when we feel vulnerable. We're, we're naturally on edge. And that we, we see a lot of that in the markets. And, and so that's a useful thing to think about. Or, you know, rather than saying investors don't feel confident, investors feel vulnerable. And, and that will frame the kinds of choices folks make much more easily. But that stress center is hard for us. Um, things don't make sense. We're not our best selves. We're not nice to ourselves or others. And so when we typically think of confidence, we often associate it with those two boxes, the upper right-hand box of the comfort zone and the lower left-hand box of the stress center. There are two other boxes that we tend to overlook but are really important. One is the box where we have certainty but no control, and that's the lower right-hand box. I call that the passenger seat. If you've been in the backseat of a cab or in an airplane, you know that environment. And what's so interesting about that environment is it can feel very calm and relaxing in one moment and then feel like a prison the next. In fact, maximum security prisons define the intense feelings of of certainty but powerlessness, the lower right-hand corner. The final box is the upper left-hand corner. That's where we have control but no certainty. Uh, if you think about the hero's journey, you know they, they start in the comfort zone, they go to the stress center, and then they have to figure their way out. And that, that figuring it out, that doing it ourselves with uncertainty is what happens in the, in the launch pad. And we forget that that's where all of our financial decisions are made. Financial decisions, borrowing, lending, um, investing, all involve control now, but with an outcome to be determined. And so in that launchpad environment, stories, our imagination of the future, 
all become critical components to how we make decisions because we have no real facts to judge them on because we're we're having to imagine what's ahead. And so if I understand you correctly, what you're saying essentially what's what's unique about certainty and control is the fact that they are actionable. And in order to be confident, <laughs> we need to, I guess, demonstrate to ourselves that we can generate certainty and control and that's going to give us the feeling of confidence and success. Yes, absolutely. And and we have to decide it. We are our own judge and jury in that process. You know, we we I cannot make you confident. You ultimately have to decide that that is how you feel. So we as parents, uh, when we say to our kids, just be confident, it that actually isn't a very good advice, is it? No, it's a ter- it's terrible advice. And the, the far better thing to, to say, and I would say ask, is, you know, what, what do you need to do to feel more in control? What do you need to feel more certain about what's ahead? That in those moments, because both of those are actionable, and I've, I've had coaches go from talking to players, you know, with, with lines like, you didn't look very confident out there, to what do you need to feel more certain? What do you need to feel more in control? And that becomes a a very useful framework for improvement. One of the things, and I mentioned this to you before we press record, that I'd like to, if we can, is to also try and make this kind of accessible to the younger generation. Of course, you teach uh, a lot of them, you come across them. Uh, We see it in our kids and their friends. And if I relate it back just to the country where I was born, in Denmark, where I do follow still the kind of the news flow, um, and and this is, of course, in particular coming after the whole COVID situation. One of the number one, <laughs> well, not necessarily the number one topic, but one of the top three topics uh, being discussed is really how the young people struggle from a mental health side and the fragility uh, of that situation. Is there anything you can talk about or put what your work in relation to maybe how you would uh, advise young people to embrace these concepts uh, or put them into their own day-to-day lives? Yeah, one of the reasons I wrote this book was the feedback that I got from my students on how this framework helped them in their own lives just to be able to visualize where they felt in terms of their feelings of certainty and control, to realize that those feelings are not weakness, they're not unusual, that real life moves us around, that we routinely experience uncertainty, we routinely experience powerlessness. And that's, that's okay. That, that's, that's more normal than we often suggest, particularly to young people. And that rather than trying to feel confident all the time, it's okay to accept that you're not. And that better than being confident is being resilient. To realize that you can endure, you can go through these experiences and return back to the comfort zone. That um, I, I had a student, she ran into class late one morning. She said, Professor, I'm in the lower left-hand corner. I'm in the stress center. I had a fight with my roommate last night. I overslept this morning. I've got an organic chemistry test this afternoon. 
And then she started to smile. And she said, but I know that when I am done taking the test and things start to calm down, I will be back in the comfort zone. We spend a lot of time focused on the reasons that we feel stressed and not on the lessons that we've learned in handling stress over and over and over in our lives. And that if we would stop and appreciate that these different experiences have built resilience, albeit involuntarily, um, I, I think that young people, I, I'm actually excited for many of them because they are going to demonstrate ways in which they regain control in their lives that I think will be transformational. I'm, I'm excited to see where they take things from here because they are beginning to realize that they're not alone in their anxiety and their stress and now want to do something about it. Yeah, no, so true. Um, and, and this is why your work is, is so important. The other thing I thought was very interesting, uh, not that I would say that I didn't know it, but it's a good reminder. And this thing about that having confidence is just not a constant. I mean, it's something we need to work on. No, and I, I think this is where the self-help world really does people a disservice. They sort of send this message that, read my book, you'll be confident forever. And that's just a pile of crap. It's like, no, you, you rather than striving to be confident, strive to be resilient. Appreciate those moments in the comfort zone, be grateful for them, enjoy them, experience them, and accept that life is going to move you around. Now, before we turn to more the financial part of, of our conversation, I do want to ask you to talk uh, a little bit about something that you found in connection uh, with a traumatic experience that your daughter had because, as people who uh, listen to our uh, conversations uh, will know, that uh, this is very relevant for both uh, Gem and I, as, as we've had very tra traumatic experiences in, in our families. So tell me what you learned from that uh, experience. Yeah, so when my daughter was a, a senior in college, her intestinal system gave out. And the result was intense dramatic surgery for her. And my wife and I had gone along with this experience. And so I thought I had a pretty good sense of how she felt through it. But being the, the professor that I am, I asked my daughter, I said, would you map that experience on the confidence map? Would you, would you tell me how you felt at different stages? One of the things I do with my college freshmen is I have them map their senior year in high school. So I can sort of see how did, how did that experience go. And what was so eye-opening to both my wife and me was that we thought that her low point was going to have, was when she had the surgery, that here she was, you know, big, I mean, an enormous change in her life. And what we discovered was that surgery provided relief. She was, you know, she felt better as a result of it. And that the moment of greatest stress for her was in the post-surgery experience They ended up having to pump out her stomach, and so they put a tube up her nose and down her throat, and she felt like she was choking to death. She, she describes it as what she envisions waterboarding to be like. And, and this moment was just horrible for her. And 
We didn't appreciate that magnitude of that moment, nor, interestingly, did her doctors. And they said, oh, yeah, well, there are lots of things we can do to make that less you know, traumatizing. And it was sort of like, well, why the heck didn't you do that in the first place? And so what I've discovered is we often presume how people feel. And what the mapping experience enables you to see is how did people really feel? What were the different moments in these life events that mattered most to them? And, and why those low moments matter is because we will do everything in our power to avoid them again. And so in my daughter's case, this moment of the NG tube became, I never want to experience that again. And it had dramatic implications on how she ate, how she behaved, that we didn't appreciate that that was the source of a whole series of behaviors that we recognized but didn't know, didn't understand the reason for them. Let's jump into the world of finance and investing. So, Jim, it's uh, over to you for a while. Yeah, it's uh, maybe a bit of a leap for that wonderful part of the conversation, which, I, which by the way, kind of resonates for me uh, as well. Um, uh, you got me thinking for sure. I'll have to to do a little work on the back end and, and think about uh, you know what that means for me and, and my family. Yeah, I I, I would I would map. I, know, just I was about take to it say, out. I think and, I'll be mapping after this conversation. Yeah, and 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 encourage your children too. I mean, one of the things that is so cool to me is how quickly young people. I, I have neighbors who've done this with their kids. How quickly kids get it and can put dots on the map in in, in a flash without any sense of hesitation. There's no judgment to it. There's no right or wrong. It's, I felt this way on this day. And it becomes very eye-opening as to, oh, wow, I didn't, I, I didn't realize that. I didn't, I didn't understand that's what you were, you were going through. Yeah, and so much of that is about the loss of control or lack of control in those situations too, as you mentioned. But to switch gears just a little bit, I think one of the interesting things where kind of what I do and, and what you do kind of uh, connect is really in this concept of uh, confidence and sentiments as it relates to markets on your end. And then uh, on my end, really how that leads to a physical manifestation in positioning, right? And what that, um, what that positioning then may mean for markets and the reflexivity that it has. Um, I think very often from uh, from when I've heard you talk and what I've heard you write, you know, you speak about confidence in markets and the implication a lot of times is things get out of hand. Confidence gets too far, right? And it leads to contrarian, like, you know, a, 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 this idea of being a contrarian under those circumstances. I think it's very fascinating to think about, okay, why is that? How does that work? Why is being a contrarian so important when you understand sentiment? And under my broad models, it's, you know, positioning leads to the opposite, right? If you're positioned, what everybody's on one side of the boat, right? Uh, reflexively, that means there's a reverse supply or demand coming back into the market um, the other way. Um, I think 
uh, you also mentioned recently that you've noted that there's an increased volatility of confidence happening, that we're becoming more and more shifting from one side of the boat to the other and vacillating uh, more and more. Um, and I think that's uh, a big, to a big extent because of market structure. Um, we are seeing uh, the physical manifestation of that actually in markets as we're seeing uh, historic dispersion, which means like the single constituents of the index are moving more and more away from each other and in different ways. The volatility of the indexes uh, or the center is often very different. And we're seeing historic rotations, uh, historic breakdowns in breadth. These are all physical manifestations of the same thing. So I could, I don't think it's, uh, it, it's more important than ever to understand how are people feeling? How uh, is sentiment affecting positioning? And what is that meaning? Because often these days, the index or the middle of the market is pinned, which ironically forces if there's a sentiment, uh, if people are too far on one side of the boat and things are moving one way, other things have to move the other way. So things are being exaggerated one way and then exaggerated the other way. Anyway, so to get to get behind that, I'd love to hear your thoughts a little bit more about why you think uh, sentiment is changing so quickly, why people are moving from one side of the boat to the other so much more, what you're seeing uh, under the hood, why you think that's happening, uh, and then maybe we'll dive in from there. It seems like at every turn, there's an advertisement, there's a story, there's something that suggests that we live in uncertain times. And what's interesting to me about that is the future is inherently uncertain. It always was, is, and will be uncertain. And so all of these messages of uncertainty are telling me that the crowd feels inherently vulnerable in some way, that the media mirrors mood, advertisers, you know, successful advertisers mirror moods. And so they're, they're just telling us that we feel things are uncertain. And so that feeling of uncertainty is leading to lots of highly impulsive, highly emotional behaviors. It's also leading us to be followers. You know, I, I write in the book that there are five natural responses to feelings of high stress, fight and flight, high vulnerability, make, you know, they get all the attention, but there's, we freeze, we follow, and then there's nihilism with it's the fuck it response. And so follow is actually our easiest response to vulnerability. All we got to do is get in line. Don't need skills, don't need strength, just get in line. And so social media, I think, has compounded our following tendency. And we see it in politics, we see it in culture, we see it in, um, in the markets. And one of the things that's so interesting to me is that the speed at which changes in sentiment show up in the market are faster and wider than ever before. We have almost mark-to-market economies and mark-to-mood markets. So that you can, you can see these linkages from sentiment to the markets, to mood on Main Street, saw it in gas prices last year. But, but this, is, this is becoming a highly impulsive environment in everything. And so listening to you talk about its impact on positioning makes such sense to me because that this 
nature, these preferences are showing up in in the actions of of individual investors and groups of investors. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think there's another level that I was really thinking about as you're speaking there, and um, it ties into us talking about kind of our children and you know this idea that this millennial generation, which is becoming more and more dominant, um, is I think the youth is always more. Uh, likely to vacillate and likely to be because there's less experience, there's less kind of stability, and they're becoming more dominant. And we're moving really, we're in this period of transition, really from this baby boomer last dominant uh, group um, as they both retire and uh, eventually pass on, um, and the and the millennials then kind of taking that mantle. Um, so there's this massive transition, which I also believe is very kind of impulsive and, you know, we all gain in theory, more confidence with time, right? Some level of control as well. Um, whereas I think actually one of the defining characteristics of this period is as millennials become more dominant and they don't feel as confident, they don't have as much control. They're at 40% of the wealth creation, 40% of the household formation that baby boomers were at this time in their generation that we as a populace and as a people feel um, a bit less confident and maybe a little bit more vulnerable. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts a little bit on that as well. Yeah, there are all sorts of echoes to the late 1960s in terms of this generational change. I mean, you you look at somebody like Joe Biden who came to politics in that environment. So there is this this generational shift that's taking place, this Geritocracy that is at one end, and then this youth that, like the 1960s, feels enormous senses of change and fear. It's not the Vietnam War this time, but it's it's other elements of vulnerability that they're experiencing and and having to navigate. And you know, like the generations before them, I I have a lot of confidence that they're they're going to become entrepreneurial leaders in society because they have to and that they're going to create networks and grassroots activism left and right up and down that transforms who we are as culture um, going forward they're going to address the vulnerability that they feel in ways that are meaningful to them and it's it's so interesting, right? Because in the '60s and '70s, the boomers were very different than they are now, right? Uh, like uh, as as we all are, as we grow and mature and uh, become more confident um, and have more control. I think one of the most interesting things to explore down that that avenue is crypto, right? Um, crypto itself is this manifestation, in my opinion, of the millennial kind of on down uh, distrust. Uh, that exists, um, you know, due to a lack of control, feeling unfair uh, that they're, you know, this inequality that they've uh, been exposed to uh, as labor, primarily coming out of, you know, high school and college, um, as well as, uh, you know, this idea that technology can solve these problems because that's the generation they grew up with all this uh, technology fixing things and solving uh, problems as they go. So I think crypto is really almost this zeitgeist, this uh, this religion, uh, in a sense, of, of this generation, even though it is, in a way, 
you know, subject to these other things we we're talking about, the bubbles and the over kind of uh, confidence and maybe that that is the way forward and that positionally that can cause problems and eventually will likely bust in its own way, right? I do think it's important to, to give crypto that credence that it is so important to this generation in some ways. And that in that being the case, maybe, just maybe, that um, it might uh, be something that that is important to that generation to carry on. And, and uh, so I'd love to hear your thoughts about crypto. I know you have, uh, you know, ever-changing thoughts on it, but I'd love to kind of dive into that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that crypto resonates whether you're looking at, you know, technology, anti-institutionalism, um, a sense of independent control. This, this, this generation is trying to determine what it means to be safe, wealthy, have power, in ways that will be different from the way our generation and the generations before us did. And so, yeah, this, this crypto resonates. The, the, the issue for crypto is, I think, whether they feel it was corrupted by the institutions, the individuals, those that they are critical of, that you know, when you look at the dominance of, you know, hedge funds and money managers and, and governments now, I'm not sure what it looks like ahead. I mean, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that electronic currencies will be a thing of the future, but what form they take, I, I don't know. Maybe a little bit of, if I can interject something since you men mentioned crypto here, and I don't know if it's directly relevant to confidence, but but what's kind of funny to me is that that generation that, you know, really wanted something that was decentralized and so on and so forth. But then after a little bit of time, they kind of crave that institutional acceptance, right? They wanted institutions to start buying it. So so it's kind of a little bit uh, uh, contrary to the whole idea, in, in my opinion. Um, and also the other thing is that what we've seen is that a lot of it, and I don't have the numbers, I don't follow it, but a lot of the crypto is really controlled by very few wallets. I mean, so it's it's a little bit weird to me. I don't know if it's anything to work from in our conversation. Yeah, no, I think there's a there's an important string to pull on there, which is, look, there's no right or wrong, right? We all go from these youth and these ideas and these uh, kind of, this idea of who, who always says it's not fair. It's kind of the, the little kid at home, right? That's um, and, and over time, you learn to realize that, you know, guess what? Life isn't fair, but there's ways to make it maybe more fair, or more just, or, um, you know, go down these pathways. Um, I think having that, that less lack of cynicism that happens as you're older and that idealism that comes with youth is so critical to driving drove the uh, equality we, we began to see here in the U.S. on a racial uh, basis, right? There, there's, the youth can drive dramatic, important change. Um, we shouldn't uh, diminish that. Um, uh, but that said, you're right. Uh, at some point, the practical reality, Niels, of these things are still important and still inevitably come into the picture. So I think I think there's a, an important kind of broader uh, conversation um, around that. Um, and I do think this generation, uh, to Peter's point, will drive important dramatic change as other important generations have. 
and we should listen to that generation. I think they're paralleling a very important struggle that we're seeing otherwise, which is autocracy, right? Broadly, globally versus democracy and a breakdown that has happened in that as, um, you know, money has gone to the top and to corporations, et cetera, through Federal Reserve dominance, et cetera. Anyway, to more dive into Peter's thoughts, um, and then I just mentioned the Fed here, so, you know, important time to kind of maybe pivot to the Federal Reserve and confidence, right? The, you know, the Fed and confidence are two critical ideas that go hand in hand, right? The Fed has to maintain confidence, and it has been able to do that um, with such uh, strength throughout the last 40 years in particular, uh, to a great extent, because they've had two mandates, which is really price maintaining price stability and you know stimulating GDP, whether that's you know, maximum employment is now the, the exact definition of that. But that was easy when they were more dominant, when, when they didn't have to worry about the inflationary side, which we really haven't had in any meaningful way for 40 years. But we're seeing a breakdown in that, which often happens with populism and this generational uh, reality that we're seeing which is making the Fed maybe a little less confident, making people's belief in the Fed uh, a little weaker. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about that dynamic and the Fed's role uh, and, and how maybe this lack of confidence in the Fed, which we're beginning to see uh, happen more and more, uh, might play out. Yeah, I have a pretty simplistic view on the Fed and confidence. You know, one of the things early on I tried to figure out, what, what's a good measure of sentiment in the Fed. You know, if I'm thinking about a, a CEO, I know that stock prices are the best measure of sentiment in a CEO. Tim Cook is only as good as Apple's stock. And I would offer that interest rates are the best measure of confidence in the Fed. If I go back to the late 1970s, Nobody had faith in the, in the Fed, and interest rates were at 21%. And so it's a very simplistic view, but you, know, you look over the past 40 years and our confidence in the Fed has become greater and greater and greater as interest rates have fallen. And so I think that we've seen the peak confidence in the Fed, given that you know not that long ago, we had trillions of dollars of negative yielding interest rate bonds. And so that to me would suggest a peak in fixed income and with that a peak in sentiment in the Fed. And so the Fed faces a challenge of being less and less credible at a time when interest rates are rising and people feel inherently vulnerable. And to your point, one of the things that vulnerability does is it creates inefficiency. We trade security for efficiency. I want redundancy when I feel vulnerable. I want added protection. I want, it, I want things local as opposed to global. And so our preferences towards vulnerability are feeding inflation at the same time interest rates are rising and confidence in the Fed is falling. And, and so the big challenge for the Fed is to prevent this snowball, this, this flywheel from developing, because the more vulnerable we feel, the more our vulnerability-driven choices are going to lead to greater inflation, which is going to, you, you see where I'm going. 
but but there i i think quite simplistically high interest rates are kryptonite to monetary policy makers and and the further they go the weaker we will perceive central bankers and we'll demonize them just like we did in the 1970s and i think that parallel of the 70s is is early on in the 70s is very relevant to your point you know uh the fed came out and uh you know called this move a year and a half ago in interest rates and inflation transitory right and uh and and i actually remember the belief and everybody was like oh they were so wrong but the belief they actually believed it probably wasn't but by stating it was transitory they were trying to convince uh, uh you know with the rhetoric the market that it it might be because of that as you mentioned flywheel starts going things could get worse Everybody always says, "Well, the bond market is bigger than the stock market. The bond market is is generally right. If you don't fight the bond market, but yet we've seen for now two and a half years the bond market being very wrong multiple times, um, which is people are very confused by. And then I think that beginning to realize, oh, wait a second, the Fed might not be dominant anymore is what's driving the bond market to be more and more wrong in the time being in this time of transition. And ironically, I I believe uh, that it's very likely that at some point we begin to lose so much confidence in the Fed uh, as a as a market that it's almost inevitable that uh, this these inflationary impulses begin to pick up more and more as the Fed has less and less control and volatility itself. There's that word right begins to pick up um, as well as a result. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I think that if I look at the mindset of many investors, they've been in the passenger seat. They've taken the view that the Fed is in control. And one of the challenges with that is passenger seat environments are incredibly fragile. And if, you know, we no longer believe the pilot is capable of, of driving the plane, we will panic. And so... I worry about panics as being more frequent, easier to execute. I mean, if I if I look at what happened to the West Coast banks, you know, six months ago, that was a panic. And I think underappreciated in 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 that experience was the speed at which the crowd assembled and de-deposited financial institutions on mass. It's it's the thing that I come back to a lot is you know we this crowd moves fast and faster than the systems are set up to manage. It's interesting be I mean you used both of you used the word panic but I've also heard you say that or, or written that when a panic happens uh, we should actually acknowledge that the worst is behind us. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So panic only occurs when we are approaching lows in confidence. It's it's almost a cognitive inability to grasp the staggering uncertainty and powerlessness that we feel. And in that moment, we're extrapolating that anxiety into the future. Things will only get worse. And I think it's useful to look at panic as an objective condition and to realize that we only experience it very close to lows in confidence 
and that ironically it's God's way of telling us that the worst is behind us, not ahead of us like we believe. I will often write when I see panicked behavior. You know, I don't know where the low is, but it's around here because panics are naturally exhausting. If you've, if you've ever experienced a panic attack, you know how exhausting that experience is. And so I know it's going to be short-lived and I know it's going to be intense and emotional, but it's very likely to be something that marks a major low in confidence. And, and can we transfer that, uh, transfer that directly to markets? I mean, this, one, this is one thing that sort of goes on a little bit in the trend-following community that I belong to, and that is we find it more difficult to deal with lows, meaning short positions, because as trend-followers, we need a little bit of time to pass before our algorithms will pick up a change in direction and change in trend. And a lot of these lows tend to happen in one single day or in a couple of days, as you rightly point out. But on the other hand, uh, highs or tops tend to take months to form. I mean, we, for all I know, may be in the middle of one. We just seem to be, you know, working our way through this topping process, perhaps. Um, and we've seen that in the past as well. I mean, can you transfer these things directly to how markets actually end up then um, play out? Yeah, I mean, we we abhor powerlessness and uncertainty more than we crave certainty and control. I mean, it's a it's a one sided. You know, pain feels worse than pleasure, and so those lows tend to be, you know, spike like because they they're exhausting in that way. To your point about sort of manic behavior, we love the party. We, we don't want to give it up. It, it's, and so it has to be disproven to us, and, which is why it lingers and lingers and lingers before it finally gives in. But we love the comfort zone and we'll do anything we can in terms of our own storytelling to prolong that experience in terms of discounting the naysayers and, you know, disregarding obvious you know, red flashing lights, you know, it's like, oh, no, no, that's Christmas. I mean, we, we, we just, we will do anything we can to recast trouble as something to be disregarded. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, the reason it's not as easy as just saying, okay, the panic has happened, right? Bye. Right. Uh, is, which I think is as a short-term indicator, by the way, is incredibly useful, um, is because confidence also plays a role in bigger, kind of more structural things as well. Uh, I think a great example would be here in the re in the in the present day, the first realization that inflation wasn't transitory uh, the first time around led to the ten year moving to four point two uh, the first time around, but then everybody got onto that party, right? The confident that this inflation was going to keep going and got on that side of the boat, which led to this February, March, oh, banking crisis, quick move, right? And, uh, you know, uh, down in yields, um, you know, almost like a panic move back because everybody was caught on the side of the boat. This time around, now we've seen, now we're right back at those highs, right? The, there's less confidence that that inflation is going to keep going. There's a lot more uh, talk about recession and deflation. And that now has actually caught people, despite being in the same place again here, 
in a place where, well, maybe that positioning is not as, uh, you know, that steepening trade that people were playing and all of that uh, inflationary bet is more balanced, which in my opinion is more likely now to lead to us breaking out now to a higher higher level. But it's an interesting kind of microcosm to think about how in the short-term sentiment can move vacillate very quickly and be very important to short-term trades. But in the long-term, there's another confidence game kind of going on uh, behind the, behind the scenes. Um, but uh, but incredibly um, interesting and incredibly uh, important, especially I feel like in this market, given everything we're talking about. Politically, I'd like to like kind of shift a little bit from uh, kind of just markets to, uh, you know, and they're, they're very connected. But, uh, you know, this idea of populism that's coming uh, as a result of this kind of younger generation feeling distrust and uh, maybe, uncom- you know, dis- not confident is leading to more money coming to that generation, right? It led to uh, not just Bernie Sanders and AOC and the populism we've seen there, but obviously even the rhetoric from the right and Donald Trump. And bringing the right left. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the political environment that we're in. Uh, broadly, what you think, uh, how you, the role you think that'll play. Uh, I know, I know you've talked a lot about also, you know, the, the increasing kind of friction we're seeing between different parties here in the U.S. and and the populists, and and uh, also kind of some of the realities as as we become more commodities become more important, the political move you know, the balance moving. I'd just love to hear your thoughts a little bit about the political situation we we find ourselves in uh, and, and as it relates to confidence and and mood as well. Yeah. So I'm going to preface this with, with a comment that I am politically agnostic. I don't want anybody to interpret that this is pro-left, pro-right. You know, this is, this is just as I observe it. So followership is a big deal. And so it's not surprising for me to see these dominant authoritarian figures gaining appeal, not just in the United States, but but globally. Environments of low certainty, low control are sort of the, the feeding ground of authoritarian figures, whether they be military, cult, political, it's a it's a trend that that you just see over and over. And and part of that is if we stand in the rain, cold rain long enough, we will get in the car with somebody eventually. So it, it's, we're, we're prone to follow the longer we experience this malaise. What's interesting is the conversation is now changing. Age is becoming a more relevant issue as we near 2024. And I would put out that we may not see either Trump or Biden on the ballot, that if age goes from meaning, you know, old goes from meaning wise, experienced, long tenured to too old, decrepit, you know, out of touch, you could see a groundswell of change on both the left and the right that opens it up to individuals we've not met yet. And I, and I think that that dynamic is, is underappreciated because all it changes, all it requires is a change in story. The other thing that's been so interesting is the connection between Donald Trump and Elon Musk. If I go back and I look in the media, 
there were a whole series of articles that said Trump is the Elon Musk of Washington and Elon Musk is the Trump of Silicon Valley. There's a clear connection in terms of sentiment between those two individuals that, again, I don't think is broadly appreciated. And so I believe that as goes Elon Musk, goes the disruptor personality more broadly, which would include Trump and others on the left. And, and what's so interesting is that Musk is, I call him the Kevin Bacon of every major post-banking crisis trade, EVs, solar, space, crypto, AI, you know, I'm probably forgetting four or five. And so I can begin to cluster all of these from a sentiment perspective as one great big trade. And I expect that we will see all of them rise or fall concurrently as the crowd sentiment either rises or falls. And, and here, uh, just one final thought is that Elon Musk becoming man, Time Man of the Year, host of Saturday Night Live, cautions that the peak of that personality type is probably two years behind us. Now, having said that, to your earlier point, what can look like panic one moment can look like resurrection the next. So this volatility of the late 1960s is something that I'm constantly aware of and acknowledges, yeah, all of these individuals and groups could rise and have a, another euphoric resurrection uh, in popularity. But that, that's sort of how I lump these all together. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great way, incredibly uh, insightful point. I do think it's important to note the, and I try and do this myself, the realities of what's happening versus, you know, the timeline under which it's actually happening relative to the narrative um, uh, as well. I mean, uh, this idea of populism, even though we really didn't start uh, focusing on it, it didn't become dominant until more recently, you know, started with Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party back in 2009, uh, you know, here in the U.S. And, and others globally. But the generation wasn't politically dominant enough that was pushing the narrative, right, uh, to, to make it actually have central effect. And we didn't have a spark that also kind of uh, set it off. It really took, um, again, and we saw that also politically with, uh, with Obama. Obama was a change president, right? He was the first real big change president of this generation um, from the left. But then Trump was the you know, change president now from the right. Um, and and there really are, uh, we have been moving through this for over a decade, and it has been growing as, again, the demographic realities, um, the voting class, uh, as well as the boomers kind of moving on. And so I think you're absolutely right. We're approaching this point where the, the physical realities of the story and the demographics and all the practical realities are in place for uh, a charismatic young uh, leader who maybe appeals to both sides, you know, brings the two together and then and we see this throughout history, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen today, tomorrow. It means the environment is set and you need kind of like COVID was this spark for fiscal stimulus, you know, a spark. Um, and that could be a personality. It could be an event. But I do think it's really important to realize what is the environment? What is the mood? 
of what are they, and, and this is, you talk about prediction, right? This is how you make good prediction is you realize that the, the structure and, and the realities, you don't try and say up or down, but you say that, that the table is set and several paths can lead within that, but that limits that amount of outcomes, which I think is so, so important. And, and your, your point about backdrop is so vital to appreciate because every one of those experiences, you know, Occupy Wall Street, the Tea Party, Black Lives Matter, you know, I can put the Arab Spring, I can put, you know, the yellow vest. I mean, they are all occur when confidence, consumer confidence in that location was already inherently low. And all it took was a relatively insignificant moment that triggers widespread social coalescence, which today, again, social media will fuel and enable far faster than we expect. A couple of other big topics out there that I think people probably could be worried about and probably not feel they have much control over, uh, that's climate change and it's UFOs. How, how does that fit into your framework uh, and, and maybe the timing of that becoming so dominant in our conversations now? So I, I think climate change, I look at it in, in this way, Niels, when confidence was extremely high, our objective was to proactively address climate change. It was bold, ambitious, sort of like, you know, we're going to the moon, this very abstract, we're going to accomplish this. As confidence falls, I think what we're going to see is climate change coming off the table, but massive remediation coming onto the table. That we're going to acknowledge that we failed to address it, and now we need to deal with the consequences of it. And... And here, there's some interesting parallels to the 1930s where that remediation becomes the backdrop for massive employment, you know, government employment programs. You know, we're going to put everybody together to build the Hoover Dam. We're going to put lots of resources to commit to big defensive infrastructure because we didn't address climate change. What that looks like, I don't know, but I think that the, the bold ambitions of climate change are likely to be replaced by the absolutely realized, you know, we can see this problem here, solutions. A couple of weeks ago, we recorded a conversation with Neil Howe, and I know you're familiar with his uh, work, and the fourth turning is here, uh, his latest work. And in, in many ways, I think that what you're writing about and studying is very much in sync with what he's seeing, but from a different angle. And so if we can, you know, kind of um, extrapolate a little bit on the timing of this, what you're saying fits into his view, which is, well, in about 10 years from now, the fourth turning will end. And what will replace that, as it has always been, is this first turning where everyone comes together. So we need, unfortunately, to go through the worst part. We haven't reached that yet. It's going to be 10 years of division, conflict, war, external, internal. 
who knows? But it will be replaced by this uh, unity and let's work together, let's overcome these problems. And in a sense, what, 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 I, what I could see is exactly what you described there, that, okay, so we fail to deal with climate change uh, in time and instead we're all going to come together and, and create these massive, whatever they will have to be, in order to deal with it at that time. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think there's a an in, very interesting parallels there. I mean, we vacillate in markets over over longer time periods from a confidence in in markets themselves uh, being the best allocator of capital, and then governments actually being an allocator, a uh, better allocator of conf, uh, capital. When markets crash or they don't perform, uh, or they create inequality and other uh, inequities, right? Um, then we ask for a more, uh, you know, controlled government allocation of that capital. And I think we've been moving towards that more recently, right? We saw that boom into the 19, 1929 and the bust and then government getting involved, uh, the new deal, everything there, right? Similar things, um, you know, um, in, in the sixties and the, uh, you know, uh, seventies as well. And so I do think government, as we've already seen is going to be continue to become more involved, um, and, uh, with a younger generation becoming more politically involved, as we've mentioned, and having uh, ideal, being more idealistic uh, and, and being more tied to some of these things like climate change and, and wanting to, to address these issues. Um, I think I do think those two things are a natural. I think that's part of, a, you know, we have this thesis on nuclear, why nuclear is the perfect kind of solution there that fits, fits practical solution, but the zeitgeist and important uh, addressing of, of this, um, you know, of this by this generation. But incredibly, you know, incredibly interesting time to be uh, looking at at confidence uh, in markets broadly. Um, I do think that uh, you know, similar uh, on a positive note, in in the 1930s, people felt in the 40s, people felt like the the world was coming apart at the seams. Obviously, we had World War II on the back end of that. Uh, but the changes that came from it, as you mentioned, end up being some of the most formative, important things that brought us a better world. 60s and 70s, you could argue a lot of the same thing. People felt like the world was coming apart at the seams. Um, but look at what it brought us in terms of equity and changes underneath the hood, driven by that younger generation as well. So, yeah, one of the things I tell my students is look at where groups of people feel vulnerable and do something about it. I mean, if you think about a 40 year opportunity from here, it's going to be driven by those who who just listen to how people feel vulnerable and do something about it. I, th- I think of Jack Bogle. You know, if you looked at the if you looked at the markets in the late 1960s and all the volatility and basically ending up nowhere, passive investing was an attempt to solve that problem, to address the vulnerability that people felt. You know, there's development of options and, and, you know, the whole, you know, derivatives and interest rates. I was at JP Morgan when that was, you know, it was addressing a vulnerability that people didn't want to ever experience again. And I think that we can all look at the uncertainty and all the things that are wrong today. But I think that if you look at them in a different light as these are opportunities for entrepreneurs and thoughtful individuals 
you, you've got change that's going to be dramatic and to your point is likely to do an enormous job in restoring confidence ahead. I've got a couple of topics left before we we wind down. I hope that's okay with you, Peter. We're going a little bit long. Um, but we are heading into some important elections. Uh, Jim already alluded to that. And and I can't help thinking about you know, some of the things we've uh, probably all become familiar with since the, the, the election in 2016, which is uh, fake news. And I think in your book, you have a quote from Kahneman, Um, that says something like truthfulness matters far less to us than whether something feels true. Can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, so we accept information that is most cognitively easy for us. And that is what rel what is relevant to us and what resonates. And so we will turn on the channel to the news that feels most comfortable to us. We will open the paper that feels most comfortable to us. And I don't believe that the media transforms how we feel as much as it does simply mirrors back to us how we feel. And the media's become very keenly aware of the perils of not following the crowd. I mean, if you if you looked at Fox's experience after the election and the, the development of Newsmax and OAN, they didn't follow the crowd as effectively as they wished they had. So we have the ability today to have almost pop-up media that fits how we feel. And so that news may be factual, it may be false but it's going to be resonant and relevant to its audience. And the, you know, the, the challenge for those that are, you know, fact checkers is they, they won't be able to keep up with it. Um, that the ability to generate news that, that Neil's watches, that's distinct from the news that Jim watches is, is unlimited today. Yeah, no, it's, it's a very important point. The, the last, uh, section I wanted to hear your thoughts about, which again, I've heard you talk about, but it also is quite relevant actually for, for the world that I come from. Um, and, and it has to do with process. And I've heard you talk about how professions that we certainly can link to very stressful environments like ER doctors, uh, they cope with this by having very good processes and levels of preparedness. And this is of course, very different from trying to avoid a crisis, as you uh, talk about. And within my world, sort of this, the systematic investment world, I really see this play out. Um, I think that we as managers of other people's capital, we have a great deal of confidence in our process that we apply when it comes to investing, even though we'll be the first ones to admit that we have absolutely no confidence in being able to tell whether the market is going to go up or down. So I think this uh, disciplined and rules-based process is, is such an underrated advantage that we have in the investment world. Can you can you talk a little bit about you know what you found in in terms of this topic of process? Yeah. So I spent a lot of time with first responders in the time that I was writing the book. I was fascinated by the COVID experience and how that was impacting the the confidence of folks in the medical world. 
And what I discovered was a mindset that was very different from many investors and certainly corporate executives. If I, if I look at the way businesses handle crisis, it is all about avoiding them and doing as much as they can to prevent them. And then they have this, this shelf that has maybe six or eight crisis manuals for the things that they think are most likely to happen. You know, if they get hacked, they get this, you know, and that's a terrible mindset for a crisis because anything that's different is you're completely unprepared for it. And what I learned from the medical profession was we don't know whether the next ambulance is going to bring in somebody with a heart attack or a broken leg. So we, uncertainty is an inherent part of the process that we develop. And so it becomes about how do you diagnose? How do you communicate? You know, how do you prepare for the unknown over and over and over? And if you, you know, if you go into an emergency room, you see how broadly well-prepared they are. And so I think that process allows you to avoid the stress center. I, again, I, an example I use in the book is an aborted landing. And we in the back of the plane are terrified when the plane, you know, misses the runway and the engine gone and you're headed back up. And the, the pilots are all but yawning because for them, it's not an aborted landing. It's a go around. It's something that they have talked about, prepared for, trained for. It's just, it's Tuesday to them. And I think that if businesses and investors spent more time thinking about crises as Tuesday, then when they happen, they're not as emotional, they're not as impulsive, they're prepared, they're far more transparent and open. The whole communication process is vastly different. You know, corporate crises becomes about withholding communication. ER practice, it's all about sharing information. And, and no regard for what happened, what, what brought the patient in is far less important than where is the patient at this point. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Any final words from you, Jim, before we start to wrap up? Uh, not really. I think the, I, listen, this was an incredible conversation, always is with Peter. Um, I, I think the practical realities of understanding confidence and how it relates to, uh, you know, its effects on markets, on politics, on the world is, it's such a primary driver of everything that happens. So uh, I can't uh, recommend enough that people go out and read Peter's book and uh, also that that uh, they keep these things top of mind. And Peter, of course, there's so much we could have asked you, so many different avenues we could have gone. Is there anything that you think we, we've we missed and that you, you want to highlight uh, towards the end of our conversation? This is a quick one, which is anytime you're not feeling confident, go volunteer. Service to others with others is the best adrenaline boost to confidence that I know. And it's not, it's so counterintuitive, but, you know, it gets you out of your head. It gets you out of your, your environment. And there's a level of gratitude that comes along with it. So, um, it, it to me is the, is the best 
boost in those moments of, uh, of low confidence. What a wonderful, positive way of ending our conversation. Peter, thank you so much for spending some of your time with us today. We really do appreciate it, and I know all our listeners do as well. You do such important work, and I hope that you have great success with your latest book, The Confidence Map. And of course, we look forward to continuing our conversation with you in the future. And why, by the way, make sure you go and get a copy of Peter's book and follow Peter's Twitter or X feed, whatever we call it now, which is fantastic. And you can find the links in the show notes, because as you can tell from today's conversation, we're living in a truly global macro-driven world, and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. From Gemini, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you as we continue our global macro series. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.